For those of you who are brand new, uh, welcome. My name is Dan McDonald. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, I welcome you. Wherever you are in your journey of life or faith, we are glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, Every week, we take some time to reflect on a passage of Scripture. We have been looking through the book of 1 John, and we are presently winding our way through the second chapter of 1 John. So, uh, if you'd like to follow along in your bulletin and on the screen will be the words, and here to read our Scripture passage is Shen. Today's Scripture reading is taken from 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are going through the book of 1 John, which was written to help assure believers who had become confused and disturbed by a bunch of other so-called Christians leaving them because they disagreed with the gospel teaching. And so their assurance was low, and John wrote this to help reassure the unassured. And in so doing, he gave them a threefold way of evaluating how they were doing in their relationship with God. We have already seen two of them as we've begun our way through the text. The first one is, do you believe? Do you have faith that Jesus really is the Son of God come to earth, dying for our sins, risen for our new life, and ascended into heaven? If you believe that, that's the faith test. Secondly, the obedience test, which we discussed last week. Are you willing to obey the commandments of God? Are you willing to put yourself from your heart into submission to Him because of His goodness to you? And today we get the third way of evaluating what theologians and commentators call the social test. How do you relate to other Christians and other people? Jesus was meeting Peter near the end of his time on earth. He had died, he had risen, he was about to ascend. And he asked Peter a simple question Do you love me? Peter said, I do. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Three times he asked Peter that. Peter finally got frustrated, said, I, you know that I love you. And on the third time he said, tend my lambs. Jesus wanted Peter to know something about love, and that is this. It is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. Love is not a crush or a condition. Love is a decision sometimes against emotions, sometimes despite feelings. Love is a conscious choice to serve the needs of another even if they do not know it or deserve it. That is love. We'll talk about love later many times, but in 1 John 4, which I am foreshadowing, you will hear these words. This is love. 
Not that we love God, didn't deserve it, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. The gospel defines love as dying to self so that others may truly live. Love is patient. It is kind, not envious, boastful, resentful, or selfish, but self-sacrificing. It is, as the Apostle Paul puts it, a more excellent way. John goes further than Paul in these passages and says, it is the only way. Love is a command. It is at the center of the Christian life. It is not an option. It is not something you do when you feel like loving people. It is a necessary, necessary, mandatory way for Christians to live. It is essential to the gospel. Do not call yourself a Christian if you are not marked by and consistently living a life characterized by this one thing, loving other people. Do not say you love God when you do not love others. In fact, John is saying you cannot know God if you do not love others as a pattern of life. You cannot say Jesus loves you in truth and integrity if the love of Jesus is not pouring into you and oozing out of you to others. The forgiving, gracious, patient, forbearing kind of love Jesus had for us. Love is is kind of the whole thing. It's kind of the only thing. It is certainly the one thing that identifies Christians. Jesus, John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John says two things here which are a somewhat provocative spin on this one idea. He says, love will tell you when you are and love will tell you where you are. And that are the, those are the two points that I think John is saying and we'll look at today. Love tells you when and where you are. When. Verses 7 and 8. I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard at the same time. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him, Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. John here starts his point about love by saying it is both old and new. It is old because Jesus said it from the beginning of his ministry, kept referring to it throughout his ministry, told people he was simply summarizing what the whole of the Old Testament had always been saying. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said to him, you shall, uh, sorry, yes, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind said Jesus. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So it is an old command, old as the God who made it, who was before time and is ageless. John then says it is a new command because the darkness is passing away And the true light is already shining. John here 
is referring to something most of us don't know, and that is that a new era was being ushered in in the time of Jesus. It is the final era of human history. The writer of Hebrews 9 makes that very clear when he says this, as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Men and women, there is a new era we are all living in, an era begun by the sacrificial death of Jesus for all our sins. And the resurrection of Jesus from the grave shows the world the sacrifice had been accomplished and the new age, the new era, the final age had begun. You see, until Jesus came, there was no final answer for sin and selfishness. There were only consummate animal sacrifices in all kinds of religions to temporarily deal with them. But when Jesus gave, he gave the full and final sacrifice of his own body, the sacrifice of himself. He died, and he was infinitely pure and good. His death was therefore infinitely beautiful and sufficient to pay all the debts of all the people in all the world. The era where sin and death were the last word was over. The era of grace and hope, forgiveness and eternal life had come. So in Jesus, with Jesus, and by Jesus, the new and final era has dawned. He carried it, incarnated it, and inaugurated an era where humans could have all their sins completely and utterly forgiven and know the hope that one day they would pass into an eternal life of sinless beauty and breathtaking wonder. A new day had dawned that would be consummated when Jesus comes back. And so, this command is as old as humanity, really, taught by Jesus throughout his ministry, but it is new in that the era that Jesus has ushered in has finally come, the era of the gospel. So, John is saying, I want to know what era you're living in, the old era of resentment and hate and vengeance and sin and death and judgment, or the new era of hope and grace and love and forgiveness. When are you living? Are you striving to obey this command, or are you not really caring about this command, loving only those who love you, caring only about those who believe the same things you do, liking only those you find attractive, personally, physically, emotionally, networkingly, career-ly, or are you loving the unlovely, the unwanted, the hard-to-like? because the love of Jesus has come upon you and the forgiveness of Jesus has splashed down upon you with such power. So John provokes this question, what era do I tend to live in? What era is defining me and my inner life? Implications, firstly, if you are curious about the Christian faith, still investigating, there is a cultural narrative today that you are familiar with and it goes something like this. Religious faith is a thing of the past. A new age has dawned of technology, science, and rationality, and it has swept away the old, primitive, superstitious religions of many cultures. I'm here to tell you this is both false 
and fatal. It is false because the data does not support it. The world is remaining staunchly religious even as modernity gives way to post-modernity and post-post-modernity. State-supported mainline Christian moralistic religion, yes, that is in steep decline. But Bible-believing, vibrant, evangelical, and Pentecostal Christianity is on the rise worldwide. And of the one million immigrants Canada brought into the country last year, at least 80% of them are quite religious. Canada is getting more religious. It is false. It is also fatal. Because you are on the wrong side of actual history, if you believe that. The secularizing narrative is disguising what is truly happened. Because alongside normal, temporal, and political human history, something has massively changed in spiritual history. And that is that God has entered the world in a man named Jesus and made the full and final sacrifice for human sin and selfishness. And in that moment, he has re-architected history. All of history before him pointed to Jesus' coming, and all of history after him is resounding with the effects of that coming. The gray world of religion and performing before God has ended. The great world of the grace of God pouring out and the unconditional forgiveness being offered as a gift by God through Jesus has come. If you do not accept this, if you do not accept this gift and this passing of eras, you cannot get grace. You will be stuck in the world of sin and judgment of God for sin, and you will stay stuck there to pay for your sins for all eternity. Because the world that is passing away leads to a place that we wish passed away. It's called hell. While the new world that has erupted into this world, the era of grace through faith in Jesus will eventually lead to a place called heaven, a new heaven, a new earth. Locate yourself. What era are you living in? Christian and skeptic alike, if you are stuck in resentment, hatreds, envying, and jealousies of people, if you are constantly comparing and critiquing all the time instead of accepting, forgiving, and loving even those whom you dislike, even those who hurt you, then know when you are. You are still stuck in an era that is passing away, the era of vengeance, hatred, resentment, of sin, death, and judgment. The dark ages of human slavery to our sin, our selfishness, and our anger, and our pride. John is quite clear. If you're not loving, you're not really living. You're stuck in an era that is passing away. Christian, to us, I ask this question. Why do we get so worked up about this present moment we are in? Yes, Christians in North America are facing some darker days of deeper distrust by our culture. But that is characteristic of this whole final age called the age of the gospel. Being in cultural power and comfort is a minority moment for the church of Jesus that may have been our past. It's probably not our future, and that's okay. It doesn't define the era of the gospel. It characterizes it. Stop hating those who dislike you. Show them what era 
they are invited to. Stop caring so much about Pierre, Justin, Doug, and Jagmeet. They are passing away. They have all disappointed me, and they should all have disappointed you. The era that has arrived is led by a king named Jesus, and he never disappoints because he always lives to pray and to forgive and to love. If you believe in Jesus, then love like Jesus. Love your enemies. Forgive those who have hurt you. Serve those who despise you because you will show the world when you are and you will show it the obsolete, incomplete, deficient way of living that we live. Love shows when you are. John then says, love shows where you are. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. John says the marker of whether you are in darkness and cannot see where you are or in light and know where you are is whether you love your brother and sister. Now, Jesus has already defined brother and sister as someone who's a brother and sister in faith in him. So this means fellow Christians. Jesus has also said in the parable of the Good Samaritan, though, that you need to love your neighbor and your neighbor is anyone in need. So we could stretch it to everyone, but John's particular emphasis here seems to be on how Christians should treat each other. So if you're a Christian here, Living a life filled with hatred shows that you are, to a real degree, still in darkness. You are losing knowledge of where you are going or should be. If you live in hatred, you are lost and blind. You have not received the love that Jesus has for you because the love that Jesus has for you transforms you. When you know yourself to be deeply non-deserving of the love of God because of your own selfishness and sin. And when you know that God, because He loved you, sacrificed His Son for you, in love for you, and His Son died for you to pay the debt of your sin, the love of Christ crashes down on you like a waterfall. You can't stop it from drenching you and changing you. John puts it this way. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is from his gospel. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, that means the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of humans, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is God become human, and as a human, He was the first, the inauguration, the incarnation 
of a new humanity to follow him, a humanity that loves each other deeply, truly, thoroughly, graciously, unconditionally. Jesus lived this commandment to love one another as one loves oneself, and he's brought the light of that kind of life and love to us. Ours it is through his spirit he gives it to help us, empower us, remind us, and guide us into loving others that way. John is making a stark contrast here, isn't he? Light and darkness, blindness and knowing. John is saying, if you love your sister, you abide in the light, which is the new way of living that Jesus calls us to. Now, we don't like black and white. We're in a culture that thinks we're too sophisticated. We're beyond black and white. We like shades of gray. Fifty shades seems to be our style. The Q&A phone is probably full already with, wait a minute, I experienced this as a child from my parents. I experienced this in high school from the bullies. I experienced this at my old church. Yeah, they probably did. I've had all those things happen to me. I have abuse issues from my family of origin. I've been bullied and beaten up many a time in school. Small body, big glasses, big mouth, bad combination. I've been slandered many times, deserved it many times. I've been misunderstood countless times. I've experienced trauma several times. So what? Does that give me an excuse to hate, to resent, to vilify? Does that give me an excuse to remain in the old era of darkness and nursing anger, despising, comparing, gossiping, demeaning, I submit to you, the gospel says no. Because the gospel gives us somebody who had all that and more against him and still said, as he hung on a cross, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, I want us to ask ourselves just a couple questions. Does it benefit me to remain in those dark places? If trauma has happened to me, and it has, and it leads me to those dark places, and it does, and still can if I let it, does though, do those dark places make me flourish? Do they bring me closer to people, to God? No. The best answer to these kinds of events is to repudiate them. Those dark places isolate me, alienate me, and end up hurting me even more. Escaping the dark places that trauma and bullying have brought me is objectively, even without any religious discussion, the best thing for me to get out of the cave that it sends me to. Secondly, does staying in these dark places help me love others better? No. It is an absolute inhibitor to my loving and caring for people well. Because dark places of resentment, bitterness, and unforgiveness focus me on me. 
me as a victim, me as being unjustly treated, me as the one needing this and that and that. The relentless pull, men and women, is inward. The relentless focus is to self. That does not make me a better lover and server of other people. Finally, does staying in these dark places reflect well on God? Do I show the world the beauty of God when I stay there? No. I make the world wonder if my God has any power. Power to change me. Power to make me more loving. Power to make me more for forgiving. God is powerful enough to heal you and help us move along from resentment to care, from self-focus to selflessness. But he's hardly beautiful at all if he can't do that. But of course he can, and he does. The bullying, the trauma, the injustices that lie in your background, they are truly there. We should not diminish them or demean them, but we should not let them dominate us. They are not our fault, but our responsibility is what do we do with them? Where do we go with our pain? And the answer that the gospel gives is to Jesus and his cross. Because the rejection and bullying I endured is nothing compared to the rejection and beatings he did. The injustices I endured were nothing compared to the injustices that he did. The torture and rejection, the sneering and the slander, I can bring my hurts to someone who's experiencing, who has experienced far more than I can imagine. Imagine being a pure God, having to come down into such an evil, selfish, dog-eat-dog world of cruelty and oppression and sin and selflessness. Imagine having to live here for 33 years feeling the brutality and the selfishness at every moment, how alien it would be to your very being and joyfully, willingly doing that. And then giving your life up for these foul, resentful, power-hungry, status-hungry people, giving your life up as a sacrifice to pay for their darkness. Imagine doing that. We can't. We only know our darkness but he entered our darkness so we could receive his light, his purity, and the Father's adopting love. When I meditate upon this costly cross, men and women, I gain the power to see my own darkness done to me and the darkness in me as things that should have no power over me. And though they afflict me, they can grow me and sanctify me and they can be redeemed the deepest pain that you have is yours but it can be transformed into a gift of love and compassion and wisdom if you will let the gospel have its place in your light let the light of the grace of God and the pain of Christ at the cross come in and dispel the darkness of the trauma and the brokenness that you have experienced. Jesus suffered for you, suffered with you, suffered what you suffer, and then triumphed over them by bearing them 
and rising from them and promises to give you power to redeem them, to wear those scars as scars that allow you to have compassion on the scarred and the broken and to be a consoler to those who are weary. You can go to others with the scars that life has given you, scars that bear the balm of Jesus over them, and you can meet other scarred people and help them find a way through and out. Implications. If you have not yet become a follower of Jesus, John says you're out of date and you're in the wrong place. Come to Jesus. You're still stuck in an era that is passing and in a darkness that will kill you. Come to Jesus. He paid for your sin. It's paid for. He offers you the gift. Just take it. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you struggle with these issues of hatred, resentment, and even indifference, come to Jesus and sit and meditate on his selfless living for you, the sacrifice of his suffering and dying for you, and the power his resurrection gives to you to bear what scars life has thrown upon you and allow the light of the cross to banish the darkness of your anger and pain and heal you and make you one who loves. The church, the church is filled with scarred and broken people. The church is a mess, but it's Jesus' mess. Pour out your love, your forgiveness, your grace, your service, your kindness, to the bride. We're a mess. We should be called Mess Toronto, not Grace Toronto, <laughs> except His grace is bigger than our mess. So we're Grace Toronto. And we need you to come into this mess that is us and bless us with your service, your prayers, your forgiveness. I remember I was uh, called to help diagnose a, a ministry back in my earlier days with um, a campus ministry, and the ministry was really struggling. And we did a full diagnosis, and we pointed out all the division and lack of leadership and lack of focus and all lack of spirituality. And so after our second meeting of diagnosis, it was pretty heavy and hard-hitting. The leader of the meeting who brought me into the meeting said, hey, Dan, can you stay after the meeting? He said, what'd you think of the meeting? I said, well, the meeting showed that there are a lot of issues in this ministry. And he said to me, I noticed that you noticed all of them. I said, well, that's what you brought me into this meeting for, isn't it? He looked at me, narrowed his eyes a little, and kind of half smiled. I said, Dan, when there's a fire in the house, it's important to recognize the fire as quickly as possible. I said, exactly. But once you've identified the fire, Dan, you're faced with a choice. You can pour water on that fire or you can pour gas. I looked at him puzzled. I said, I don't get it. He said, Dan, I don't care what organization you're in, what company you might work for, you always have this choice. 
What choice? He said, when you keep criticizing the fire after everyone has seen it and knows how dangerous it is, are you pouring water on it or are you pouring gas? This ministry is in trouble. We all know it. Your continued critique of it is simply pouring gas. Next meeting, come with some water. I want solutions. Meeting done. I walked out having learned a lesson. This church is like every church. We're a healthy mess, but we're a mess. Welcome to Mess Toronto. Bring your mess to our mess and help us bring this mess to the cross because this mess is Jesus' bride. He is the we that we've been... Sorry. We are who he has come to redeem. We are who he died for. We are who he calls to love and build up. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Love, love is the sweetest thing. Love is the answer. Love the higher law. In the name of love, once more in the name of love, love the mess because it's his. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us in this mess of life and our sin and our church community to be a family, to love your bride and beautify her, for she is yours. You died for her. You're praying for her. You want us to make her beautiful. But we're a mess, so we bring our mess to you. And we bring this bride to you and say, make beautiful this mess of sinful people. Help us to love each other in Christ's name. Amen. Yes. I think we have time for one question. Um, There's six on the phone, so you'll have a busy afternoon. Uh, Gosh. Okay. Just pick one. Otherwise, they'll think that you're picking the softball question. I'm not picking the softballs. I just some of these questions um, I think are better to be answered in a, in a privately, yeah, pastoral, pastorally sensitive. Um, okay. What is the meaning of hatred in this context? Is hatred the opposite slash failure of love? Yes. Sorry. (laughs) I thought of going off on a long rant about the antithesis of love being indifference and quoting C.S. Lewis and those things, but in this case, actively disliking someone and wanting their ruin or wanting them to fall is uh, what is embedded in that word. Yeah. So... I don't know how to transition from there to the worship team. So worship team, come on up. (laughs) Here are people worthy of your love. But let's respond to a God who we have hated at times and acted in hatred towards, but who has loved us anyways and sent his son to die. 
with glad hearts. Let us rise and respond.